You are listening to WSQF 94.5. Welcome, everyone. This is the Statues in Story Hour. I'm yours truly, Mac on the Rock on WSQF Blink Radio. We're waiting for Adam Levinson to give us a call. And uh, we're going to talk about the history of quarantine. And um, it has an interesting twist to it because as far back as George Washington, there was a desire for the country to uh, save itself from yellow fever. Yellow fever was an issue all the way till 1898, I believe, when the United States continued its right to quarantine in the lease at Guantanamo. In the Guantanamo lease and in the Platt Amendment and in the Treaty of Relations gave the United States rights to eminent domain the entire Guantanamo base in case of an outbreak of waterborne diseases. I believe it was, uh, you know. Yes, sir, Adam, would you like to speak on via a cell phone? No, you're calling you're calling the cell phone and now we're talking live on the air. So uh call the um the studio line so that the audience can hear you better. Three three oh five three six five seven seven seven. Okay. So uh apparently we were having phone issues. So here we go. Hopefully uh, Adam will be calling shortly here, and uh, uh, he apparently was, there's a problem with the phone. I don't know. It seems we had a call earlier today. We don't have a problem with the call. Is this Adam Levinson, WSQF? Yes, hello, everybody. Welcome, Adam. Uh, were you having a problem with the call, or you just didn't remember the call? It's okay, because it happens to me all the time, and, you know. <laughs> You know, if you got if you got something going on, you know, it's all downhill after 50. So if you're not there yet, you have no excuse. Okay. Getting close, getting close. Okay, good. Give us the story of quarantine. I was uh, telling the audience before you start that quarantine uh, commenced with George Washington, but as late as 1898, um, the United States was concerned about waterborne diseases when they signed the lease at Guantanamo, our first foreign base over waterborne diseases and the, and the right to eminent domain the base and quarantine everybody on the base to protect ships leaving Guantanamo to the southern ports of the United States. So uh, quarantine has always been on uh, national security, uh, on the federal government's mind for national security reasons. For good reasons. Yes. So we'll, we'll build up to Cuba and Guantanamo, but uh, I want to go back even before Washington to give some of the history of quarantine. And the reason why we're talking about it today, for obvious reasons, is that just turn on the news and you've got uh, these cruise ships which are in Japan and off of Hong Kong and uh, they're quarantining passengers. And that's good. That's a good thing that they're quarantining, in my opinion, because you don't want these diseases, this is the coronavirus, uh, to spread to, uh, to, to these are new novel, when they say novel, meaning they're new, new viruses that they haven't experienced before. <clears throat> so what is the early history of these notions of quarantine? And the quick answer is that you can go back to the Bible and the book of Leviticus. So there are five books in the Jewish Bible or the Old Testament. So Leviticus talks about quarantining lepers, and that's a whole separate conversation. It's also discussed in the New Testament, and this is uh, Lazaretto, and I'm probably butchering the name. Uh, so uh, Lazaretto, which is in Philadelphia, which is a quarantine hospital, was named after Lazarus, and Lazarus was a leper in the New Testament who was treated and brought back to life by Jesus. And that's, these are examples of quarantine from, uh, from the, the Middle East. Uh, you know, 2,000 years ago. So what about more recently? And the answer is that the Roman emperor Justinian in the 7th century was using quarantine, and the concern back then wasn't coronavirus necessarily, but the plague. So uh, the Romans were using quarantine uh, to require that new arrivals from plague-infested regions could be temporarily isolated. And then the Chinese, uh, not to be outdone, similarly were using, this is during imperial China, uh, again, hundreds of years ago. I don't have exact dates for that, but they were also using quarantine for foreign tra travelers and foreign
foreign sailors. So this is not something which is new. It's been around for a while, and it's now in the news, so I figured this was a good time. And the last couple of discussions we've had, we're taking subjects out of the news, uh, impeachment discussions and, and other topics. So uh, how, would, how do we relate that to the founding fathers and mothers? And that's the job today, is to relate the history to, uh, to current events. So we gave a little bit of the background on early quarantine, and then how does that connect forward to America? And the answer is that it wasn't just the Romans and the Chinese who were using quarantine. Uh, let's skip ahead now to the Renaissance, and during the Renaissance, this is in Europe in the 1500s, um, quarantine also became an issue when they had what was referred to as the Black Plague or the Black Death or the Bubonic Plague. And the name quarantine, so here's a little bit of uh, Italian for anyone who speaks Italian, and I will butcher the Italian, but the Venice, so the Venetians, were the first to put in place an institutionalized system or a formal system of isolating sailors, and they came up with this notion of 40 days. So I'm not sure that 40 is a magic number. I think, uh, depending upon the disease, sometimes you can do it for shorter periods of time. Uh, but long story short, the Italians or the Venetians were using a 40-day quarantine. In fact, that's where the word quarantine comes from, because in Italian, and this is the Italian word, uh, and it may sound similar to the Spanish word, you'll tell me, but uh, Q-U-A-R-A-N-T. So, quaranta giorni, G-I-O-R-N-I, which means 40 days, and that's where the notion of quarantine came from. Yeah, for us it's quaranta, but yeah, that sounds right. Yep. So in 1403, this was the Venetians were using the first maritime quarantine station that they set up, which they referred to as the Lazaretto, L-A-Z-A-R-E-T-T-O, named after St. Lazarus, and that was built on an island off of Venice. And the idea is you keep the populations of the sailors or travelers isolated on an island or on the ships until you demonstrate that they're not getting sick, and then you can let them come into the general population. So this is the Venetians in the 1400s, and let's now fast forward <coughs> to the American Revolution. And what I think we want to do, because I have a lot of material, instead of compacting it all into one hour tonight, we'll continue the conversation next week, because I don't want to just talk about quarantine. I also want to talk about another issue, and let me tell you what the controversy is. But the second issue that we'll, we'll talk about next week is not just quarantine, but inoculations or vaccines, because the two go hand in hand. You, you take populations that are sick or might be sick, and you quarantine them. But uh, to prevent people from getting sick, that's the idea of doing a vaccine. And uh, there, are, there are people out there without doing too much of the modern controversies who don't believe. There's the anti-vaxxers who don't believe in vaccinations, even though the public health is pretty clear that this saves lives and saves lots of lives. So we'll continue that conversation next week. And the, the, the debate on civil liberties is, you know, some people are big government. Uh, you can be conservative or, or, or liberal. But uh, this, this notion, this interplay between how muscular and how forceful, how much power should the government have to quarantine people? And it's not just sailors potentially quarantining what's happening in China. They're quarantining an entire city or an entire province. So how much authority should the government have to do that? And this is the protecting the public welfare. And then with vaccinations, should people be forced to get vaccinations or children? And there is a Supreme Court case that we'll talk about next week dealing with vaccinations. And the quick answer is yes. The U.S. Supreme Court has held that under certain circumstances, vaccines can be required. So we'll talk about that next week in some of that debate. But today we're mainly talking about uh, quarantine. But again, the two issues go hand in hand. And this is when I like to point out to people that not only can you listen to the, the radio live tonight, which is on Monday, you can also go to the website, WSQF, and you can listen to the podcasts and share them with others uh, or re-listen to them if you want to get more into the details. And then the other option for people is to go to the website, statutesandstories.com, and that's all one word, statutesandstories.com is the website where we have a lot of this information that we're talking about, which we post about on the history website, which is free. We put in all kinds of Link. So we touch on some of these topics, and people can really get into the weeds and look at the laws that we'll be talking about. These are acts of Congress and uh, other primary sources. And because I'm a big Hamilton fan, Hamilton is now, uh, let's see, in Palm Beach, and it's coming down to Miami. So I try to bring Hamilton, if possible, into the conversation. So uh, as we've done on prior nights, I have found a way to bring Hamilton into a discussion of quarantine. So we'll be talking about uh, and the, the issue is, what authority does the federal government have? And the new federal government started in 1789 when the new constitution was written. The constitution was written in 1787. It had to be ratified in 1788. <clears throat> and the constitution takes effect in 1789. So let me give a little bit more backstory of leading up into the, the American federal government being created. In 1789, you, of course, had the 13 colonies. So not surprisingly, if the Venetians were using quarantine and the Chinese and the Romans, the American colonies were also doing uh, quarantine. And the first example that I've been able to find is uh, 
in Massachusetts Bay, so that was one of the colonies that became the state of Massachusetts. So in the, let me give the dates, this is in the 1600s, Massachusetts Bay, 1640s time frame, uh, put in place the first you know, evidence or record of a quarantine by one of the colonies, uh, 1647, Massachusetts Bay, and we'll put links on the website Statutes and Stories. And uh, then in the 1660s, a little village or town of East Hampton, Los Island, uh, Long Island, sorry, so East Hampton, Long Island, which is not too far from New York City, instituted the first land-based quarantine, and the concern was smallpox, and we'll talk about smallpox today and next week. So we started with uh, Massachusetts Bay, which is uh, in the northern part of the, the colonies. Massachusetts is a northern colony. And then East Hampton, Long Island is in the middle colonies. It's New York area. And that was in the 1600s. And there were these smallpox epidemics that were happening in the 1600s. And a lot of the other colonies, including Virginia and South Carolina, also put in place quarantine requirements. And we'll put in some of those links so people can actually read those laws, which is what I really love to do, is to give people the ability to look at not just talking about the history, but to touch it and feel it. So we'll give some of those laws or acts of the colonial legislatures from the 1600s. So that brings us up today now to uh, the 1700s and to uh, the American Revolution. And Washington was a smart guy, and Washington had traveled to the Caribbean, and he had gotten smallpox when he was in the Caribbean. So he understood about inoculations, and he understood about uh, get developing immunity. And once you get smallpox once, the way that most immune systems work for most diseases is once you've been infected, you can't get that same disease again. So uh, another issue was yellow fever. So smallpox and yellow fever were very dangerous diseases in this time frame. And when you've got British troops coming to America to fight, and all the Americans who may have been most of them on farms congregating to work and to fight with Washington. This introduces the, the very serious risk of disease. So we'll talk about yellow fever and what Washington did with inoculations. And just to give you a quick high-level summary, Washington issued an order in 1777 that all soldiers in the Continental Army should get inoculated. And let, let's talk real quickly about what an inoculation is. And we'll use smallpox as an example. And the, the famous uh, doctor, this is Edward Jenner, uh, realized, and he was in in Britain, he realized, and, and this is an example of how the community has wisdom, and the communities understood, these farming communities, that the milkmaids who were milking the cows would get what was referred to as cowpox. So, man, you've ever heard of cowpox? Because I hadn't heard of cowpox. No. Uh, I, 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 do we assume that it's something to do with smallpox and the same symptoms or something, or no? Exactly. So, cow, cowpox was a version of smallpox that affected cows, and if you were a milkmaid or a milkman, and you were, this is 200 300 years ago, if you were milking cows, you could get what they referred to as cowpox on your hands uh, because you're exposed to the cow, and the cow would get smallpox except it's cowpox. So it's like our chickenpox. Like our chickenpox, exactly. So people who were working with cows would come down every so often with cowpox, and what they put two and two together, that if you had had cowpox, then you would not get smallpox, which could kill you. So th these uh, women who are working with the cows on the farms, or I'm referring to them under the terminology they used back then, but the milkmaids uh, were developing this resistance because they would not come down with smallpox as long as they had had cowpox. So Jenner puts two and two together. This is in England in the early 1700s time frame. And he realizes that, that there's a connection here. The reason why they're not getting the smallpox, which is deadly in many cases, is because they had exposure to it for the cowpox. So he then started introducing it. They would make a little uh, Lancet is the name of the British medical magazine. Absolutely. I've read Lancet many times. Uh... Uh, it's also a magazine where people go to complain about healthcare in general. Okay, and that may be true. So the British, and this is Edward Jenner, would make an incision, and he we could talk in more detail next week, but make an incision on somebody's arm, and he would take the... the Small dosages to introduce you to build the antibodies, right? Exactly right. So they would take the pus from someone who had the cowpox uh, to introduce it to you to give you that immunity so you wouldn't get smallpox. So Washington, and we'll talk about this more next week, which is on the subject of vaccinations, Washington inoculated the American army. And he had to be careful about doing that because when you give someone an inoculation, you're purposely giving them. And today we use attenuated or weakened viruses. Back then they were using live smallpox, or sorry, live cowpox to develop resistance to smallpox. So again, they would give you live you know, the pus from cowpox to inoculate you against smallpox. Whereas today, we do basically dead 
viruses or very weakened viruses. So back then, if you were inoculated, you would come down. That was the point. You would come down with cowpox to protect you against smallpox. So if you do this to your, your whole army at one time, and if the British figured it out, the British would attack because your, your soldiers uh, take a couple of weeks to get better and to, to heal from the, you know, the version of cowpox that people were purposely being given so that they won't get smallpox, which is deadly in many cases. So long story short, we'll talk about that next week. But uh, to Washington's credit, he was using vaccinations in the Continental Army in 1777. So I, I want to talk, though, about the first, and this is the main purpose of today, is to talk about the first federal quarantine laws. And I encourage people to go to the website, Statutes and Stories, because we just posted on this yesterday, and you can see the actual laws, and we put pictures and links. So the, the concern in 1793, and this is the time frame that we're now in, there was a horrific epidemic of yellow fever in Philadelphia. And people may remember that New York was our first capital for the federal government in 1789. And as part of a Hamilton-negotiated deal with Jefferson, the decision was that Hamilton's financial plan, in order to get political support for it, they agreed to move the capital from New York City which was the second largest city, to Philadelphia for 10 years. Philadelphia was the largest city. And then during that 10-year period, they would build Washington, D.C., which was just a swamp. And this is where we joke that, uh, who knows, is it still a swamp today? We can debate about that. Yeah, nothing, nothing's changed. So for that 10-year period, Philadelphia was the nation's capital while they were building Washington, D.C., close to where Washington lived in Virginia. So Virginia was the largest state, and Philadelphia was the largest city. But in 1793, there was a horrific outbreak of yellow fever. And the reason 1793 is important is because there was a revolution in Haiti. At the time, it was called Santo Domingo, if I'm pronouncing it correctly. And remember that the American Revolution is in the 1770s. The French Revolution is in the 1780s. 1789 is the storming of the Bastille. And uh, once the French Revolution sort of gets out of hand and spirals out of, um, uh, there, there are a lot of radicals who were, you know, I'll be careful how to describe it, but, you know, they, they took Marie Manchin, uh, how do I pronounce her name, Antoinette, and uh, King Louis the Sixteenth, and they were executed, and there was a lot of bloodshed referred to as the, um, you know, the, the bloody reign of terror in, in France. So a lot of wealthy French aristocrats were leaving to go to French colonies, one of which was, at the time it wasn't called Haiti, Santo Domingo, so a lot of French... Yeah, that's where the, that's where they, that's where this plague came from, right? That's right. So a lot of the French who escaped out of Paris, parishioners or Parisians who uh, were wealthy uh, royalty, if you will, and uh, you know the, the three parts of French society. There's uh, the king and the royalty, there's the clergy, and then there's everybody else. So the, the clergy, in some respects, were being targeted, and the royalty and the, and the nobility were being targeted, so many of them left the country and settled in, in the, at the time, again, Santo Domingo. Uh, but a slave revolt happened, uh, which, of course, led to modern-day Haiti. And uh, when the, it was about 2,000 French left Haiti to escape that uh, slave rebellion, and uh, Haiti became the first free country in South America and the Caribbean other than the United States. So when a lot of the French left, so they were leaving two countries. They left France to go to Haiti, and from Haiti, Santo Domingo, they came to Philadelphia, which was the nation's largest city. So these 2,000 and French ex expatriates brought with them the, uh, the the yellow fever, which started an epidemic in Philadelphia. So here, let me give you some of the numbers, which is really what we read today about, uh, you know, the coronavirus killing maybe 50 people per day, which is horrible. Uh, wait till you, and that's in the entire region of, in the entire country of China. Wait till you see what was happening in Philadelphia. So Philadelphia was a city, the largest American city at the time, 1793, with approximately 50,000 residents. And uh, the epidemics, I should tell you that yellow fever can be spread person to person, but it's also spread by mosquitoes. And they didn't know that at the time. They did know that people could spread it to one another. They didn't know about the mosquitoes. And the, these these outbreaks would end in the wintertime because the mosquitoes would die. And Philadelphia was surrounded by swamps and by water. It happened to have been a very rainy season uh, during the time leading up to when the outbreak started. And people would collect water in barrels, and they didn't have good public sanitation. So the mosquitoes are everywhere. Uh, so once it gets introduced into the population, the mosquitoes spread it. So of a population of 50,000, approximately 5,000 died of that city of 50,000. That's 10% of the population. And there were days where they were averaging 50 to 100 deaths per day. There were so many bodies in the street that there wasn't enough time to remove them, and people didn't want to touch the bodies. And what wound up happening, about 20,000 people from Philadelphia fled the city. And at the time, this was the nation's capital. And we're going to talk about an issue that came up of, uh, in fact, we give links to some of the letters, because we'd like to quote letters, so you can read the founding fathers in their own words. And the issue that came up for Washington was, 
well, the Constitution says that we have a, a seat of government, and the Constitution doesn't say the president can decide to move where the government is meeting. And they had written a law in 1789 or 1790 setting Philadelphia as the nation's capital for 10 years. So when this horrible outbreak is happening in Washington, D.C., or I say Washington, in, in Philadelphia, the nation's capital, Washington asked the question, can I say we're going to move Congress not to meet somewhere else, into one of the nearby adjoining areas, adjoining areas? And Jefferson, who is a strict constructionist, so in other words, Jefferson believes, uh, as others who strictly interpret the Constitution, that if the Constitution doesn't say you can do something, you can't do it. So that was Jefferson's position. That's the advice he was giving Washington. No, you can't move the seat of government. Congress has to decide to move. So Washington writes to Hamilton to find out what Hamilton says. And Hamilton's answer, and it's on the website, I won't read it to you, is basically that yes. And I do want to give you a quote, because during the debate in the Senate and during the trial, we quoted a lot, and it wasn't just uh, us on the radio, but of course the senators were quoting and the House members who were the prosecutors were quoting from Federalist 65 and other Federalist papers. I'm going to quote from Federalist 23, which is also written by Alexander Hamilton. And here is where he's describing in general about how the Congress and the Constitution um, gives area and flexibility in the case of national emergencies. So this is from Federalist 23, and Hamilton says, quote, the circumstances which may affect the public safety are not reducible with certain determinable limits. In other words, what does that mean? That means we, we can't specify what future emergencies are going to be. So the circumstances that may affect the public safety are not reducible with certain determinable limits. We don't know what the surprise is. You know, it could be an earthquake. It could be um, disease. There could be other things that are going to result in a national emergency. So he continues, there can be no limitation of that authority, which is to provide for the defense and protection of the community in any matter essential to its efficacy. So he's basically saying that he thinks the Constitution gives latitude to a president to do what needs to be done to protect the, what's his language, defense and protection of the community in any matter essential to its efficacy. So the president can't just do things as he wants to, but in the context of an emergency, um, you know, when it comes to the matters essential, he was willing to say that the president can move the location of where Congress is meeting and can move the seat of government temporarily. But Hamilton was aware that, uh, you know, rather than Washington ordering that we move, he, he recommended that Washington recommend to Congress, to congressional leaders, that they move their location. And remember, they hadn't convened. You know, they take breaks between one session and another. So Hamilton's recommendation to Washington was that Washington should recommend to the congressional leadership that they choose a place where they want to meet. That way he's not forcing them to do it. And that was an issue in England. If the king could dissolve parliament and tell parliament when he wants them to meet and where they can meet, if the, you know, if the president is able to boss around Congress, that's an issue. So Washington recommended to Congress that they move their location until the epidemic died down, and they agreed. They agreed to move to another location, and it turned out to be Germantown in Pennsylvania not too far from Philadelphia is where they temporarily met. So that's a little bit of the background. So let me tell you more about this epidemic in 1793. So you had basically 50 to 100 people dying per day, forcing the government, to, the federal government, to leave Philadelphia. And I mentioned about 20,000 people, and it was at the time the largest American city, just got out of town. And if you were wealthy enough, you could stay with neighbors or go to one of your country homes. But uh, for the, those who were the poor in Philadelphia, you're stuck there. And then remember, other cities aren't going to want you to come in. And that was what was happening. Other cities were saying that, no, if you're from Philadelphia, we're going to quarantine you because we don't want you coming into New York. We don't want you coming into other cities. So we'll, we'll talk more about uh, some of those examples later. So uh, that was the problem that came up in, in 1793 in Philadelphia. And what wound up, Philadelphia wound up doing and this is a little bit after the epidemic, and so this is in the 1799 time frame. Philadelphia built what's referred to as the L-A-Z-A-R-E-T-T-O, which was the first quarantine hospital in American history built in Philadelphia in 1799 in response to this yellow fever epidemic. And that 10-acre lazaretto, which was a hospital, offices, residences, uh, where ships could go through and passengers and cargo, uh, which was you know off on the side so you wouldn't go into the city. So that was a good decision Philadelphia reached. And for nearly 100 years, that lazaretto was where they would quarantine people and they would, you know, monitor. And we'll, we'll talk about um, other ways that you try to protect public health. So that was the lazaretto in Philadelphia. So let's talk about the law. So I'm giving you the buildup to this law that was passed. And um, let me also tell you who died. So, um, you know, yellow fever 
was a horrible disease. And just to tell you how horrible it was, uh, I'd like to talk about Hamilton. Hamilton's mother, uh, her last name was Fawcett. So she was from the Caribbean. Hamilton was from the Caribbean. In fact, his mother died. Uh, but when his mother was... Yeah, he was you know, from the island of Nevis. That's exactly right. So Hamilton was from Nevis. His mother, who was... Um, she was Huguenot, which means she was a Protestant from France, or French Protestant. So of her family, five of the children, when she was a child, died of infectious diseases in Nevis. Uh, Burr, Burr's father, mother, and both grandparents died of smallpox in 1757. So just to show you that, Hamilton's mother was one of only two children that survived an epidemic. Burr lost, again, his mother, father, and both grandparents. And what happens to you when you get yellow fever, and I don't want to gross people out, but it's referred to as yellow fever because your skin would get jaundiced and turn yellow color. You would have red eyes. You would shake with chills and a severe muscular pain and uh, black vomit uh, from bleeding stomachs. And then, of course, uh, you know, the, the, the shakes and the, uh, and the horrible yellow fever. So that was the epidemic in Philadelphia, 1793. And here I'm going to talk to you about um, Dolly Madison. Who did Dolly Madison, and this is, of course, uh, not a tr trick question, but who did Dolly Madison uh, marry, who was a president? Wait a second, man. Why are you playing tricks with me? All right, so Dolly Madison was married to her first husband, who died during this epidemic, and James Madison was single. He was sort of a quiet, uh, very studious kind of guy. Uh, so in other words, you should have just said Dolly, not Dolly Madison, like a trickster. So without trying to trick too many people, so she's one of the most famous American first ladies. And she married Madison, but she was Madison's, uh, you know, it was a second marriage for her. Madison had never been married. So but for the death of Dolly Madison's husband, John Todd, um, then we never would have had Madison getting to marry uh, Dolly Madison. So that's just an example of there were lots of deaths at this time, two other names that we've talked about over over the, the various time periods. Um, so these epidemics took the lives of Benjamin Franklin Bache, uh, who was Benjamin Franklin's grandson. He was a newspaper publisher. And John Fenno, these were competing newspaper publishers. One was a Republican, one was a Federalist. So in, in a way, the disease was bipartisan. It killed Federalists and it killed Republicans. So the Treasury Secretary in 1793, after Hamilton, was Oliver Walcott. And Oliver Walcott, I'm going to quote you what he was writing about how this horrible epidemic, here's is a quote, in Philadelphia, the streets and roads leading from the city were crowded with families flying in every direction for safety to their country. Walcott wrote that the apprehensiveness of the citizens cannot be increased. Business is in great measure are abandoned, the true character of man is disclosed, and he shows himself a weak, timid, desponding, and selfish being. So when you've got chaos like this, it's not a pretty scene. So uh, again, this is what's happening in Philadelphia, 1793. So what does Congress do? And the answer is Washington recommends that they relocate, which they did. They met instead in Germantown, which is near Philadelphia. So what is the result? And the answer is, in 1796, Congress passes, and we talk about these on the website, Congress passes the first federal quarantine law, and the states had their own quarantine laws. So you know, this is an important question. What power does the federal government have to force people to stay either on a boat or in a quarantine hospital? And let me talk to you also about how different states would do things. So let me read you from uh, the South Carolina example of quarantine laws. In South Carolina, would do the following. And it, it would vary from different state or different colony to colony. So this is, let me use Massachusetts first. Massachusetts, the head of the house should acquaint the selectmen, so the town fathers, if you will, the selectmen would be notified that someone had the yellow fever or smallpox, and they would put a red flag of prescribed dimensions hanging outside the house to notify people that someone has smallpox or yellow fever in a house. And if you didn't have that sign or that flag, that's a 50 pound penalty, which is a lot of money. The fine of 50 pounds is a lot of money. Uh, other 1764, this is also in Massachusetts, they would appoint guards that would guard any house wherein any person might be visited with smallpox and prevent all persons from going in or coming out of infected houses without a license from the selectmen, so the town fathers. So posting guards, this is in the, in the 1700s in Massachusetts. Let me give an example from, let's see, South Carolina. So affixing an advertisement on a post on the nearest public road is what they would do, or similar advertisement on the nearest parish, house, or church. So again, notifying neighbors that someone has a disease, stay away from them, where they live and who they are, with also a $50 or 50-pound fine. Um, 
also, I thought this was funny when I was reading about uh, inoculations, uh, but it's usually the wealthier families would get themselves inoculated. And, you know, if, if you if we're talking about smallpox and cowpox, if you give yourself or have a doctor give you cowpox, you know, it probably takes about two weeks before you heal and you're back to normal. So let me read to you about how sometimes whole families uh, would sign up that they're all going to get sick together, and people do this with chickenpox. You have chickenpox parties. So here I'm reading from an article. No way. Whole families joined by numbers of friends frequently repaired to the inoculating house and enjoyed one another's society during the long period of seclusion. So you inoculate your family to, you know, to give you immunity with cowpox, and you repair into the house that you're choosing, uh, you know, where you're going to live for two weeks or so with your friends and family. So this is what I got a kick out of. So many of the romances of the later colonial days were initiated in the propinquity uh, these hospitals... Could you help me with... Per- Pinkity? What what did you just say? That's a word that's really intense. Let me re- read that again. So. No, but I want to know the definition. I want to know the definition. I'm sure the audience does too. So when you're close, when you're in close quarters, so many romances during this period were initiated when friends and family would get together to get cowpox, so they would develop immunity to smallpox. So if you're living with a bunch of friends all in the same house, um, that's why it says many romances were uh, were initiated by these people uh, who were sharing quarters uh, in order to get inoculated. So just think about that. You're, you're purposely trying to, uh, to to get sick. So that- yeah, that's kinky. That's kinky. Kinky pox. There you go. So <laughs> that, that's a little bit of background about how inoculations were taking place. Um, so, and again, different states would do it differently with red flags or with signs on churches and doors and roads. So that's how they would, uh, you know, quarantine people. And of course, if it's a ship that's coming into a port, you quarantine the ship. So now this is the background leading to 1796. Congress gets its act together, and Congress has to decide what can we do to pass a law for the federal government. So. And there's some more detail I won't go into because people can go to the website. But uh, the quick answer is in 1796, Congress passes a law signed in Washington, and it's basically just a single paragraph. And I like it when a law is nice and simple and straightforward. So Yeah, but then Adam, didn't Adam sign a much longer one later? Exactly right. So Washington, a couple years later, would do another more detailed. They would flush it out in more detail. But they started simple with a single paragraph law. And basically what it said is that the federal government, and who was the federal government? The federal government was the military. But remember, the military, the war was over, was basically just out the frontier ports. So there wasn't, uh, sorry, when I say ports. Yeah, which means the uh, forts. The famous, uh, the guys who collected taxes on the cutters. Uh, what were they called? Um, the, the revenue cutters. So the revenue yeah. officials. So you had the military, but there wasn't much of a military in 1789, 1790 time frame, right? So you've got the port, the, you've got the military is in the forts. I said ports, but military is at the forts on the western frontier, and we don't have much of a military because most of the military is really states with militias. But the the, the, the guts of the federal government was revenue collectors and, and postal roads and post office officials because we did not have a big federal government at the time. So this law provided that if called upon and if necessary to assist the states, because it was state quarantine laws, the federal government could assist, and this would be Hamilton's, uh, you know, revenue collectors, and, and you mentioned the Coast Guard many. So the revenue cutters were the ships that were used to make sure there was no smuggling and to collect the revenue and the taxes, the tariffs. So let me just read you because it's a short paragraph from the 1796 law that was the first federal, the name of the act was an act relative to quarantine. And let me skip to it. It says, be enacted by the Senate and House of Representatives of the United States of America, Congress assembled, and here it is, that the President of the United States be and is hereby authorized to direct the revenue officers and the officers commanding forts and revenue cutters to aid in the execution of quarantine and also in the execution of health laws of the states, respectively, in such manner as may to him appear necessary. And that's that entire law. That one paragraph was what they did in 1796 to allow the federal officials, revenue officers, the, the commanders, etc., on the revenue cutters, which are the ships, uh, to assist the states with quarantines. And as you pointed out, a couple years later, so Washington's the first president, and then John Adams was the second president, and this epidemic did not end in 1793 because it would come back sometimes from year to year in the 1790 time frame. So let me get a quick drink of water and I will be right back. Hold on. <coughs> All right. So 
A couple years later, 1798 time frame, they pass a law which we talk about on the website, which was creating military hospitals for sailors to provide health care to the sailors who had been sick and potentially are communicating diseases. That also allows you to lock them up or to seclude them when they're in a military hospital or a, a hospital for sea, seamen or for sailors. So that way you keep them out of the general population. So we passed a law dealing with um, hospitalization of sailors in 1798, and now it's 1799, and Congress has done more studying. And I'm going to read to you from John Adams, his, um, you know, every year the president gives the State of the Union address, and back then they didn't call it the State of the Union, they called it the Annual Address. So I'm going to read you, if I can find where I put it, Washington's Annual Address, um, beginning of his second term as president, or second year as president. So this is what Washington, this is what Adams says, and the quick answer is, you know, everybody knows who Adams is. Adams was from Massachusetts, and Adams was uh, one of the leaders of the Continental Congress. We talked about in other nights that Adams was uh, was very active in in, uh, in Europe during the Revolutionary War as a diplomat. So this is what he says during his State of the Union address. And here I'm quoting. He says, and this tells you how bad that epidemic was. While with reverence and resignation we contemplate the dispensations of divine providence in the alarming and destructive pestilence with which several of our cities and towns have been visited. So what is he basically saying in, in the language they would use in that time period? He's talking about the pestilence. He's talking about the destructive, um, the destruction and the dispensations, though, of divine providence, which has you know, saved some people. So he's saying there's still cause for gratitude and mutual congratulations that the malady has disappeared. So it had died down. And now we are permitted to assemble in the safety at the seat of government. So we're now we're back in Philadelphia for the discharge of our important duties. And here he goes. He says, but when we reflect that this fatal disorder has within a few years made repeated ravages because it kept coming back, 1793, 95, 97, it didn't die down for a couple of years. So he's saying, we reflect that the fatal disorder has within a few years made repeated ravages in some of our principal seaports, so he's giving the background, with increased malignancy. And when we consider the magnitude of the evils arising from the interruption of public and private business, here he's skipping ahead to what he wants to do, he says, whereby the national interests are deeply affected when you've got cities being ravaged by disease, when the national interests are deeply affected, I think it my duty to invite the legislature of the union, so he doesn't call it Congress, he says the legislature of the union, to examine the expediency of establishing suitable regulations in aid of the health laws of the respective states. So again, he's not saying the federal government should do quarantine, but to aid the states on state quarantines. I think it's my duty to advise and to invite the legislature of the union to examine the expediency of establishing suitable regulations in aid of sickness in the health laws of the respective states. He goes on to say that the idea that contagious sickness may be communicated through channels of commerce. And let me pause about that for a second. So that these contagious sickness he doesn't call it yellow fever, they don't know how it's spread exactly, but he's making the point that it's communicated through channels of commerce, and that's an important observation. So the federal government is a government of limited authority. The federal government can't do whatever it wants. It has to have enumerated powers in the Constitution, in Article One, which is Congress, or you could have implied powers using the necessary and proper clause. But he's specifically mentioning when he tells Congress to, to pass more quarantine laws that um, this involves the channels of commerce. And he goes on to say that it seems to be a necessary, let me get this right, there seems to be a necessary that Congress, who alone can regulate trade, should frame a system which, while it may tend to preserve the general health, may be compatible with the interests of commerce and safety. So what is Adam saying in the State of the Union address? He's saying this disease travels in commerce, and what can Congress regulate? Congress has the authority to regulate interstate commerce. And I'm going to read you from Article One of the Constitution, is where it talks about the Interstate Commerce Clause, and it also talks about quarantine and state inspections. So let me find that real quickly. So we're citing from the U.S. Constitution, which John Adams is referring to. This is Article One, Section 10, Clause 2 of the Constitution which says that no state shall, without the consent of Congress, lay any imposts on duties or imports. So only Congress can do tariffs, so no state can do duties on imports. Well, they were, allowed, they were allowed to tax for their inspection purposes, correct? That's a good point. So that's exactly what I'm about to read. So only Congress, the federal government, can do tariffs on imports and exports. 
right? So uh, and we have to be careful about differences in between imports and exports. So let me read again. No state shall, without the consent of Congress, lay any imposts or duties on imports or exports except, and this is the exception, what may be absolutely necessary for executing its inspection laws. So states are allowed to do taxes on goods that are imported as, quote, absolutely necessary for executing its inspection laws. So he's referring to the fact that, you know, states are allowed to have quarantine and do have quarantine laws, and uh, that became one of the questions. What can the federal government do now? So let's skip ahead to the 1799 law, which repealed the 1796 law. And what is the title of the 1799 law? And the quick answer is it's an act respecting quarantines and health laws. People can go to the website and read it for yourself. So this goes into more detail. So the first law, 1793, is a single paragraph. Now we have an eight paragraph with eight sections, an eight section more detailed law that laid out the specifics of what would happen. And here, Congress understood we have to be respectful of the different branches. So what about the courts and the Supreme Court? If the Supreme Court, can the president tell the Supreme Court to pick up and move if there's an epidemic in the location where the court is located? Absolutely. So what the law says basically is that it's up to, uh, and I don't want to read all because it's boring if I read it, but um, you know, it lays out procedures that the Secretary of Treasury would be in charge of telling the Treasury Department to move, but it's basically up to the, the, the courts. And remember, the courts uh, are, are meeting on a more regular basis than Congress, which comes and goes. So, so maybe I should uh, give you the paraphrase of, of how the courts, but basically the law is trying to be mindful that the president's not going to tell the courts what the courts should do. And what about, you know, the issue is, uh, what about those that are in jails? Can you leave them in a city if you're evacuating the town? And the answer is that uh, the courts and the judges, the magistrates, uh, had the authority if they wanted to move prisoners from one location to another if there's a, if there's a bad epidemic. So they're, they're worried about this, and they addressed it in this law from 1799, which goes into some degree of detail about how the federal government would assist the states. And the first version, basically, if the states want assistance, the federal government can help. But in 1799, and I'm trying to oversimplify it, the federal government can assist even if the states don't want assistance. And that's an interesting little dichotomy about, you know, uh, you know sometimes the states aren't able to ask for help, and by the time they ask, uh, you know, there are things that you need to do. So th this is the, you know, this issue of the, the balance between state and federal governments, particularly when you have an emergency. So we, we talked about Adams' State of the Union address. We talked about the yellow epidemic, the yellow fever epidemic in Philadelphia. And let's give some more examples of what other cities are doing. So let me mention in, in some of these locations some of the listeners may be familiar with. But uh, we, we talked about how Philadelphia put in place this, this uh, location, uh, which I called the Lazaretto, L-A-Z-A-R-E-T-T-O, which was a hospital and quarantine station off of Philadelphia. Uh, but uh, other big cities did this also. So New York Harbor, it was called Bedloe's Island, built the quarantine station. And again, this is ships coming in. You quarantine them so you make sure that the sailors aren't sick. And that's on an island in New York Harbor called Bedloe's Island. And after, years later, that was built starting in the 1730s, when they built when they tore it down, uh, that island, which at the time was called Bedloe's Island, later became probably the most famous island south of, uh, let me just get my directions straight, so south of Manhattan. Manhattan, the shapes are like a pencil. So the tip of Manhattan, if you think of a pencil, the sharpened point facing south. So to the southwest of the bottom of Manhattan, there's a very famous island. If you take the ferry to go to Staten Island, you pass this very famous island, which at the time was called Bedloe's Island. Um, so I'm, I'm trying to, if you're familiar with New York City, Manny, uh, this is uh, a very famous uh, figure holds a torch on this island. Oh, that, you mean that, you mean they put the statue there because she couldn't get, she couldn't get sick? <laughs> That's an interesting observation. So what I'm pointing out to you is that the, the island, which today is Liberty Island, where the Statue of Liberty is located, in the 1730s was used as a quarantine station. They called it Bedloe's Island in New York Harbor. Uh, and once they turned it down, it wasn't big enough. Instead, in the 1800s, they used another island called North Brothers Island. This is on the East River. And uh, that's uh, the location that, the, for example, Typhoid Mary during the 1800s. Uh, some listeners may be familiar with Typhoid 
typhoid Mary, and if we have time, I'll give into more detail about typhoid Mary. But she's a famous example of someone who spread typhoid, another epidemic, uh, to they don't even know how many people, but potentially 50 or 100 people got sick from typhoid Mary spreading typhus. So uh, San Francisco also had, of course, California won't be until later. We have to move across the continent to settle California in the 1840s, etc., 1850s. 1849 is the 49ers, the gold rush. But uh, California also had, off San Francisco, one of the biggest cities in California, had an island, that's Angel Island, where they would where they would quarantine sailors and immigrants from other countries. Uh, so lots of the big cities had these locations, islands, where you would quarantine people. And let's give some more examples of how quarantine would work. And let me skip ahead. You know what, let's, let's talk about Typhoid Mary before I forget. So Typhoid Mary was an Irish cook. This is the 1800s after the Irish potato famine. So she comes to America. and That sounds like a lot of people's ex-wives. So her name was Mary, and uh, she became infamous because of what wound up happening. And uh, back then she was working as a cook, and she was asymptomatic. So you couldn't tell from looking at her that she was carrying typhoid or typhus. So she's asymptomatic, and she wound up working for several wealthy families as the, as the cook. And over a period of five years, she worked for eight families, and the doctors wound up wound up uh, tracking this because you try to find the person who was spreading the disease. So all of the families, eight families that she worked for during that five-year period, all of those families developed typhoid. Uh, I'm sorry, not all, seven of those families developed typhoid. And um, many of them, the, the children died and, and people got really sick and uh, you know, she had multiple deaths attributed to her. And she admitted that she didn't understand the purpose of washing her hands because she wasn't sick. But uh, to the extent that she's cooking and touching food and not using sanitation as we do today, she was spreading typhus. So eventually they, they located who this person was. They tracked it down, who's spreading it to all these wealthy families. If you're familiar with Oyster Bay, which is off of Long Island, that's where Teddy Roosevelt and the wealthy Roosevelt family came. There's a, uh, Billy Joel, I think, has a house in Oyster Bay. So it's uh, maybe an hour or less from Manhattan, depending on if you're taking a horse or a car. So uh, so she's working in Oyster Bay area and, and uh, you know getting these wealthy families sick. So they tracked her down and they put her in a location to, for three years uh, so she shouldn't be able to spread any more disease. And again, you couldn't tell from looking at her that she's sick, but she's an asymptomatic carrier. And after three years, uh, she convinced them that, yeah, I won't work as a cook anymore. Let me out. This isn't, and this is the debate, by the way. Can you take someone like this who, um, you know, is carrying a disease and can you, this is before they had more modern medic, this is the 1800s. Uh, so can you uh, restrain someone? So they held her for three years. She promised she wouldn't work as a cook anymore. Lo and behold, more typhus started spreading after she was released, and they tracked it down to her. She wound up, even though she promised not to cook anymore, she's spreading it again. Uh, so they rearrested her, and they held her, get this, from 1915 to 1938. So help me with my math. That's basically, uh, if it was 20 to 18, over, tw over 20 years, they held her on North Brothers Island. So that's why she became so famous, because the people she killed by spreading typhus. But this is the question. Can the federal government or can any government you know, lock someone up for spreading disease? And this is the controversy. right? So that's, uh, that, that's a little bit about Typhoid Mary. Now, there is a case I want to talk about, and uh, next week we'll talk about the inoculation case. But today I want to talk about uh, the case of Gibbons versus Ogden's, and this is 1824. And uh, we can spend a little bit of time talking about Gibbons versus Ogden, and uh, who was uh, one of the most important chief justices of the United States in this time frame. So he wasn't the first chief justice, but he was appointed by Washington, and he was the longest-serving chief justice. And he had a lot of respect for Hamilton because he knew Hamilton well. So this is uh, John Marshall. So Justice Chief Justice John Marshall uh, has this case that he writes the opinion, 1824, Gibbons versus Ogden. So what's the issue, and why am I bringing it up in the context of quarantine? And the answer is that the Gibbons and Ogden were, were suing one another over navigation rights. And the names I'll mention to you are Robert Fulton and Robert Livingston. So Robert Fulton was an inventor, and he invented, he wasn't the first inventor of a steamboat engine, but he was the, sort of the guy, I'll compare him to, um, to Apple Computer and Steve Jobs. So Steve, Steve Jobs wasn't necessarily inventing new technology, but he's applying new technology and making it commercially feasible and getting it out there into the market and perfecting it and utilizing it. So that's what Robert Fulton was doing. And Robert Fulton, uh, if we have time, and let me look at the clock, we 
we've got enough time. Yeah, we'll do a little bit. Of... Yeah, go ahead. You know. Okay. So Robert Fulton realizes that the steam engine, which was invented by I think Watt in in, uh, in England, so the steam engine can be used for boats. And remember, if a river flows downstream, it's difficult to get upstream by paddling. So he realizes we can use these uh, technology of 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 the steam engine and apply it to boats. So Fulton and Robert Livingston, who was our ambassador to France, we talked about Livingston on other evenings when we were dealing dealing with France. So the two of them create a company and they get a they patent their steamboat and they get uh, exclusive rights or a monopoly from New York State that they're given the exclusive right to travel on New York waters. And the plaintiffs wind up suing them, saying that, no, we've got our rights from New Jersey, and you're preventing us from using the New York ports, and uh, you shouldn't be able to do that because the we talked about the Commerce Clause before. The Congress has the right to regulate interstate commerce. And once you leave New York, you know, you're in the stream of commerce. You're on a river that connects two different states. Can New York prevent, um, you know, here it's Fulton and Livingston from having their ships travel on New York waters? Um, or can they prevent competitors, I should say? Can, can New York grant a monopoly? So long story short, the plaintiffs in the case hire a very famous attorney. This is Daniel Webster. The case goes up from the New York courts to the U.S. Supreme Court, and uh, Daniel Webster makes the argument that this is the exclusive power of Congress to regulate interstate commerce, that the states cannot regulate interstate commerce, and interstate commerce includes, and this was one of the issues, includes the instrumentalities of commerce and includes navigation, because if you can't have boats bringing you know, materials and supplies and goods manufactured and and, and farm produce, et cetera, that's interstate commerce. So Webster makes the argument that not only can Congress and only Congress regulate this, but it includes boats and shipping. And what is the argument that connects it to quarantine? Why am I mentioning this? So New York tried to argue, the defendants tried to argue that because Congress had passed quarantine laws and because the Constitution allows states to do taxes for quarantine and inspection, that was giving the states the permission to, this was the argument that lost, that they argued because there were quarantine laws and because the Constitution allows the states to do health inspections, they tried to argue that that gave the New York state and other states the authority uh, to regulate and to put monopolies in place, and the court disregarded that and rejected it. So Marshall determined, and it was an important case in terms of federal authority, and people can debate about how strong, muscular, and robust should the federal government be, and this is the issue of federalism, states versus the federal government, you know, where should power be and what's the appropriate thing for different parts of government to do, but, uh, but the, the point is that uh, even though quarantine was being used as a reason why New York should be able to give licenses and monopolies uh, for Fulton or for Livingston, uh, the answer, according to Chief Justice, Marshall, Chief Justice Marshall, was that no, Congress, this is a quote, only directs officers of government to obey state quarantine laws, but does not pretend or attempt to legalize them. So that's probably too much legalese. But at the end of the day, the court held that uh, you know Congress is in charge of interstate commerce, and states can't interfere with interstate commerce. Otherwise, if states were interfering with commerce, that brings you back to how it used to be under the Articles of Confederation, where states were taxing each other and creating barriers between one state to another, and that's what the Constitution was written to prevent. So that's the case of Gibbons versus Ogden, and it mentions, because the defendants tried to use that as an argument, state quarantine laws, which does exist in the Constitution, that states are allowed to uh, to do health inspections, and that's Article 1. Well, can I sidetrack you for a section, uh, uh, for a second, just yes. because the, uh, the issue came up in my head? Uh, do you think that it would be completely impossible, uh, based on the Constitution, for for the states to collect the federal taxes and 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 share it with the federal government? So that, that's a little off the subject, but you're asking, could states collect federal taxes? And not, not trying to be an expert in that area, I would say if the federal government authorized them, then Congress could authorize states to do, do it, but they would need authorization from Congress that couldn't do in it. In other words, if they got, if they, let's say they repealed the income tax, right, and corporate taxes stayed the same, uh, at whatever level uh, of levy they, they chose, could uh, in other words, in a case of a federal sales tax, as been proposed before, wouldn't it be, wouldn't it make more sense for the uh, the Department of Revenue of each state to collect that tax and then share it in a in a in a probably a very complicated formula based on population and what they would send to the federal government, or does the Constitution prevent even considering that concept? These are good questions and. Uh without having thoroughly studied it, 
And I know this is an area that's near and dear to your heart because I know you have a book that talks about these subjects. Yeah. The proposals. So because uh, I'm starting to think, that, I'm starting to think that it's an impossibility based on what you just said. No, no. But what I'm pointing out to you is that if Congress authorizes it, I don't have a problem with. It. I think Congress could authorize states to assist, just as in the context of quarantine, that 1793 quarantine law, the federal government is assisting the states with state quarantine. Using that analogy, I don't see a reason why the federal government couldn't authorize the states uh, to be one of the tools or one of the mechanisms that's used to collect taxes. Uh, as long as Congress delegated it and authorized it, the states could not do it on their own without federal approval. So let me talk a little bit about Robert Fulton, who was the fellow who invented this uh, steamship, which was the subject of that case, Gibbons versus Ogden. So let me talk about Fulton. And what, what I thought was interesting about Fulton was that, um, and remember, he was given a 20-year monopoly on the steamships. Uh, during the French Revolution, uh, he invented, he was hired by Napoleon or commissioned by Napoleon to do a submarine. And he invented the first practical submarine, not the first submarine, but the first practical submarine, from what I'm able to tell. And take a wild guess what the name of Robert Fulton's submarine was. And back in the day in Disney World, they used to have a submarine ride. The Nemo. No. <laughs> okay, the Nemo, the, the Nautilus. The Nautilus, yeah. The Nautilus. So, uh, Fulton, That's probably the ride that I most remember of my childhood. So his submarine that he invented for Napoleon or developed for Napoleon was the Nautilus. He also switched sides. Uh, he went to Britain and he developed torpedoes for the British Navy. And then after the Battle of Trafalgar, where the British fleet defeated the French fleet, the British didn't need his torpedoes. But this is a guy making the point that you know he's an inventor. He's applying technology that others have come up with to try to put it in practical use and to make money. Uh, and by 1806, he returns to America. His famous steamship was called the Claremont and ferried passengers from New York to Albany was the first route, and then he wound up putting another steamship routes uh, going to multiple cities on major rivers in New York. And remember, if people are familiar with the New York topography, you've got a lot of big hills and mountains. The the, uh, the mountains up there are the, um, I forgot the name starts with an A, the, um, it'll come to me. But long story short, it's easier to use a river rather than going by horseback until you get trains. Uh, so that's why you know, there were these rivers and canals were very important at the time. So he made a fortune, Robert Fulton, with his uh, with his steamships. Uh, so that's a little bit about Fulton, and he also was on the Erie Canal Commission because uh, they're building canals that you can use your ships on to deliver supplies and uh, and uh, manufacture goods and farm products, etc. So that's a little bit about the economy back then. All right, so tonight we, we've talked about quarantine laws, and I encourage folks to go to the website if you want to get your fingers wet in the 1793 and 1799 version of the federal quarantine laws. We also have links to the, the first federal, uh, I'll call it what it was, health care law for health care for these sailors, because you don't want your sailors getting sick and spreading disease. And what else do we mention on the website? I think we also, uh, at another time... Well, you actually show the actual writing the actual copy of these two quarantine laws. That's right. I, I think, you know, what better way to learn history than to look at it and to actually touch it and feel it and, and read these old laws, which is what we do on the website. So let me just back up real quickly to talk about what about quarantine laws today, because we've been talking about quarantine in the 1790s and in the colonial period. And the quick answer is it's just a little bit of history, and we, I'm going to put links to the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control. So the CDC in the 2000 time frame had about 55 quarantine stations around the country, not just in seaports, but also along the Mississippi River and other locations, and they reduced, because we were fighting these diseases, they reduced the 55 quarantine stations to about eight in the 1970s because we succeeded in defeating a lot of these infectious diseases. But after September 11, and with the risk of, um, you know, bio technology and uh, biological warfare and who knows what the Russians or other uh, actors might decide to do with, uh, with sinister purposes. So they then decided after we reduced the number of quarantine stations from 55 to 8, after September 11th, we increased the number back up to 20. So as far as I can tell, we now have about 20 quarantine stations, uh, which includes uh, all kinds of uh, bioterrorism protections. And SARS was an issue a couple years ago. So that's the reason why the CDC, uh, authorized by Congress, you know, has the ability to do quarantines today. And the last point I'm going to make 
is that this is an example. Some people ask, you know, executive orders. What's the purpose of an executive order? And the answer is the president has the ability through an executive order. That way, you, know, you can imagine a scenario where Congress can't meet, which is what was happening in Philadelphia in 1793, because of you know disease that's spreading in Washington D.C. So the president, the way the law is written, can do executive orders identifying diseases that he's allowing to trigger action by the CDC for quarantine purposes. And right now, the list of diseases that are covered by executive orders, I'll just read some of the list, cholera, diphtheria, tuberculosis, plague, smallpox, yellow fever, hemorrhagic fever, uh, acute respiratory syndrome, SARS. So these are already diseases that have been recognized by the previous presidents. Uh, which how, about, how about dengue? Cuba has a lot of, Cuba has a, a dengue problem right now. How come they don't talk about that and cholera? Maybe there was an executive order on that. I'm just reading the ones that I saw. Right. But the point is the president does have discretion here, just like Washington had discretion to say, let's get out of uh, Philadelphia and get out of the way, as recommended by Hamilton, for Congress to pick up with that and to, to, you know, to follow. So what's the point? The point is that the federal government, uh, again, pointing to Hamilton, does have latitude to address emergencies, and I'll, I'll end. And it's not a source of authority, but it does give background. We'll, we'll end with the, the preamble to the Constitution. So, you know, my kids who are in middle school and my son is in high school, they, they learn the preamble, how does the Constitution start? So we the people, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, and promote the general welfare and secure the blessings of liberty for ourselves and our posterity, and I butchered it. But long story short, it talks about the general welfare. So Congress and the president, as necessary to protect the general welfare, can do quarantine, and we've been doing it for hundreds of years, and hopefully we will not have to do too much quarantine as we figure out how to solve the coronavirus. Well, the the, uh, the my final comment will be the latest report out of China, and apparently these are uh, uh, covert intelligence sources confirm that the coronavirus in China is affecting 23 million people who have already been quarantined, 2.8 million who have already been infected, and there's 112,000 dead so they've been covering up a lot about I, I have not seen those kind of numbers and hopefully that's over an overstatement but we shall see we'll see so stay free my friends and love your country and uh what can i say take care this is the episode of i don't know what is this our 20th episode or no, so more than that i'd say we're closer to 40 we're at 40 in that Ian, that makes me that makes you old and me old <laughs> Take care, Adam. Thank you very much. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That was our Statues and segment on quarantine at Statues and Stories. Check out his website, statuesandstory.com. We'll have this recording up shortly. Take care, my friends. Over and out. WSQF Blink Radio. The handmade blade, the child's balloon Eclipses both the sun and moon To understand you know too soon There's no sense in trying